This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thank you for joining me again today. We're going to dive right in because we have so much to cover this week and next, but we're going to continue our current series entitled, So, You Want to Be a UXer? Where we are talking about various aspects of what it takes, what might qualify an individual, the things you need to consider if you're interested in pursuing a career in user experience. We started out the first three weeks, we refer to those as higher truths weeks, and we were focusing specifically on the types of character traits, the personalities that are best suited for working in UX. I'm going to repeat just a little bit of this. Um, a lot of times when people are taking upon themselves to pursue a, a, a career in a particular field, a lot of times people just, there, there's something about that particular field or discipline that interests them and they pursue it in many cases only to find out, you know what, this isn't for me. And, and this is usually because somebody just never took certain things into consideration. Maybe they like the money. Maybe they like the prestige. Maybe they like some of the excitement. And so they run after it only to find out that their particular personality is not really made for that role, that type of lifestyle. Look at it from any angle. There's there's always something that proves to be um, the that one little element, a caveat that actually <laughs> it, it, it turns out the person just is not a fit because of that. And we always joke about the doctor. There are a lot of people that would love to be doctors and then find out they can't stand the sight of blood. They, they like being doctors, but they don't like people pulling on them all the time. Um, so if that's the case, if you don't really like being a servant, which is essentially what the, the, the mindset that a doctor has to have, then you just simply will not work in that role. It's not, it's not suited for you and that's fine. And you move along and you, you do something else. A lot of people have been entering into user experience related disciplines. And it's because there's something about it that sort of, it, it, it intrigues them. They're curious about it. They think it's fun, certain, certain aspects of it. And, and who even knows if they're truly being exposed to UX when they get excited? A lot of people today are not. They're not truly being exposed to UX in many cases. So what we're doing now is we started last week. We're talking about certain tasks and responsibilities, knowledge components, things that we have to practice, certain skills, things that we get involved with in our roles as user experience professionals, so that you can see, hey, oh, so this is what you do? I think I'd like that. Oh, this is what you do? That is not for me. Whatever it is, we want someone to have good, sound, accurate expectations, and we want someone 
who's going to, if you're going to venture into this direction, at least do it the right way. You don't want to waste money. You don't want to waste time. And 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 you want to retrofit this to whatever it is that you're, whatever career you're you're pursuing. That's fine too. It, it it's you have to find out what might be associated with that particular discipline in order to truly retrofit it. The mindset is, however, we need to take sober, realistic looks at what we're thinking about getting into so that we can pursue it the right way. So we can pursue it and, and we're not we're not just 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 trying to enter into that arena for all the wrong reasons. We want to make sure that we're doing it the right way, that we're doing it for the right reasons, and then you won't have any regrets. So that said, I am not going to recap last week's segments that we talked about, the different tasks and responsibilities of the different components of UX that we talked about last week. We will not discuss those. And going forward, because there are so many of these, we will not be discussing them. This is a very long list. So we'll see how far we can get in the time that we have remaining, and then we'll just proceed on from there. The next element up on the list is wireframing. Wireframing is something that all user experience professionals should be able to do. I have to say it that way because wireframing, which essentially, let me describe it a little bit more before I mention a a key point, wireframing to the UX professional is the same thing that creating blueprints is to an architect. The wireframe provides a skeleton-oriented view of the design or the proposed design, just like the blueprint serves as a point of reference for the people that are actually building an edifice, so also will people who are working on bringing a design to life look at the wireframes and then use those to guide them as they are putting things together. The developers, the visual designers, uh, the the interface designers, people on that on that level, these people will all look back at the wireframes. So that means this is critically important. And I should also mention something that gets missed about wireframes is that wireframes are, as are many of the deliverables that, that UX people produce, wireframes serve as a communication tool uh, in addition to being a point of reference. reference. It helps us to communicate what our recommendations are so that people get a nice, sound understanding. Wireframes can be delivered in different ways. Sometimes they have annotations. Sometimes they don't. There are certain certain places where the, the UX professionals, instead of providing the old traditional, we call them boxes and arrows sometimes, where you just see really uh, bland, grayscale, boxes, image placeholders for logos, image placeholders for other images on the page, all types of very rudimentary elements, which is also good because if you show people something that's too high fidelity and it's not really supposed to be the final design, your stakeholders will shock you sometime because they think that that's the look and they may buy into it and now you've got a problem. So showing people something at an extremely low fidelity, which is usually what Wireframes are sometimes they're mid fidelity, so it's a mix of high fidelity and 
and low fidelity. Uh, very seldom are they high fidelity. That's more of a mock-up than a wireframe. So that's another issue that comes up a lot in design circles that people refer to mock-ups as wireframes. But no, a wireframe is a blueprint. A wireframe is a skeleton. It is something that is extremely basic and it is used to provide information about design direction. It is used to present so that you can confirm buy-in for said direction, but it is by no means supposed to be the representation of the absolute final version of a design. It is very rudimentary, is very basic, and it is it is something that that is one of the first deliverables in many cases that the whole team is going to see when it comes down to illustrating or representing what that design or that design direction is going to be. So wireframing is critical. Now, here's the thing that I almost got ahead of myself and started talking about, but I want to make sure that you hear this and that you understand this. Wireframing is almost like a lost art. In this age of sketch, and no, we're not saying sketch is bad. In this age of Figma, no, we're not saying that Figma is bad. Whatever the tool is, and those are usually two of the ones that people have been gravitating toward quite a bit over the last few years, those tools are used to generate deliverables, whether it's a working prototype, which is the next phase after you get past wireframing, and they're usually clickable, usually uh, gives you not only an idea of what the design direction is, but because it's a prototype, which was the next thing on our list. Anyway, a prototype is just like any other prototype. It It is on the line of what that final design is going to look like, but it also allows you to interact with it. Prototypes can be used in usability testing. They can be used to not only show people how the design looks, but you can also use a prototype to show people how the design actually works. One of the things I was going to mention earlier is that there are um, some, I, I worked at a, uh, an ad, at a an advertising agency or a digital design agency, I should say once, where they didn't want to see those old school wireframes. They didn't want to see annotated wireframes. They wanted to see a working version of the design and they were going to click around and that would inform them how things worked. Even the development team, they wanted to see things work. They didn't want to just see how it looked. They wanted to see how it worked. So prototypes are great. That's the thing that you really want to take into a usability testing scenario. You want to take something that people can actually see, uh, especially because you can't. I was talking to somebody about this earlier today, actually, how that and a shout out to the folks at Sand Dollar Design and in South Africa. I was talking to one of the folks on the team there earlier today, and we were talking about wireframes. And people, when if you present a low fidelity wireframe, whether it's just to show them that, that wireframe or if you make it interactive and show it to people, a lot of people cannot relate to that low fidelity example it's good when it's when you're communicating to people on the team. It's good when you're communicating to stakeholders initially to get, as we said, that buy-in for the design. But showing low-fidelity work to a, a test participant is extremely risky because a lot of people simply cannot relate to that low-fidelity 
presentation. Some stakeholders can't relate to a low fidelity presentation. So, so be wise, be selective with your wireframes. It's going to depend if there were 10 of us sitting around a coffee table talking about, about UX and talking about how we do our work. All 10 of us might be doing the wireframes or presenting them a different way. These elements that I'm presenting, however, are the basics and, and things will shift, will be pliable and will be flexible. And we're going to present the wireframes in a way that best serves the needs of those in our organizations, our stakeholders, our development teams. But this is what a wireframe is. It's basic, rudimentary. It's a skeleton. It's a blueprint. And if you want people to know how the building is going to come together and how it's going to function, wireframes should be done. The fact that it is becoming seemingly, it's, it's like people have, you don't, see a lot of people doing wireframes. They automatically up the the fidelity. Some people don't even know how to how to really create a, a true traditional wireframe. And if you go to work at a certain organization, you may be required to do exactly that. If they don't do it where you work, if they don't do it where you're thinking about working, that does not mean that you don't know how to do it or that you shouldn't know how to do it. You still need to make sure that you know how to do a wireframe just in case it is required of you. So are you ready to do wireframes? And some people call, refer to folks as wireframe jockeys because they work at places and that's all they do is, is turn out wireframes. I've seen places like that before, not a lot of fun. You're not, you're not necessarily going to get into a lot of critical thinking if that's all you're doing is just producing wireframes, but you're not actually solving the design problems and then putting together the wireframes. So, I mean, there's so many companies out here. There's so many UX positions that things, things vary, but let's make sure that we understand things. I'm trying to present these things from a very base perspective that would apply to everybody, no matter where you are. So we need to know what a wireframe is and whether we're doing them or not, you need to know how, especially if you're talking about mentoring people. If you want to mentor UX people, but you don't understand base aspects of the discipline, who in the world are you going to mentor? And and somebody might be chuckling when you hear me say that there's a lot of people out there trying to mentor UX folks and they bring nothing to the table. I, I once on LinkedIn made mention of how more people who bring something to the table should be mentoring. And for some reason, somebody decided that what I posted was a call for volunteers. It was not. It was just, I was just trying to let people know they should be in a position of doing it if they bring something to the table. Well, the person, and this is usually the case, the people who usually jump first are the people that shouldn't be doing it, frankly. And someone put their name out there that they could be a mentor and I looked at the person's profile and the person had like, and I'm being facetious when I say this, uh, it is, he had like three minutes of UX experience. He brought nothing to the table. There are people who have no UX experience. They want to help other people grow and develop. And in general, that's nice. But if you want to take me on a trip and you don't have the right vehicle to do it, you can't take me on the trip no matter how much you might want to help me if you don't have the right vehicle, then it simply is not going to be done. So there is a call to realism 
there's a call to being honest with yourself. There's a call to being honest with others. And then we proceed that way. So just another thing too, if you want to be a UXer today, please be more careful of judging. And, and uh, yes, I did say that judging, evaluate, score, uh, check to see if something is actually viable. You, you do it with everything else in your life. Don't, don't, don't let some of the folks today who tell you that judging is a bad thing, uh, trick you. And the next thing you know, you're welcoming something you should have rejected into your fold. Don't do that. Don't do that today. If, if uh, judge your resources, is it, is it worth your time or is it not worth your time? Is it, is it something that's going to help you to grow truly? And do you really have the wherewithal to, to, to gauge? Yes, that's another type of judging. Gauge whether or not it can let you grow. A lot of people put stamps of approval on resources that they should be running from. And so if you want to be a UXer, just throwing this one in there, if you want to be a UXer, you need to be good at that. And if you don't know how, that's fine too. There was a day that we, a lot of us, did not have the skill or the knowledge to, to gauge what resources to tap into, and then somebody helped us or we ran into a brick wall and we learned the hard way. I would hope that folks would would not have to learn the hard way, but be able to tap into good, solid resources, find them, build a personalized learning network. We'll talk about that in another uh, podcast, uh, maybe a couple months or so down the road, and, and make sure that you are tapping into resources that are truly going to help you grow and not put you in a position to embarrass yourself and keep you from bringing value to yourself and your organization. So just a little tidbit, a little bit of a digression there because that was not on the list. So we talked about wireframing. We talked about prototyping and we want to talk about minimizing cognitive load. When the UX professional is designing a solution, one of the things that will help us to optimize our efforts is to make sure that we're designing something that doesn't make users work too hard, doesn't make users think too hard, doesn't challenge them to use their memory, something that will flow very, very easily, effortless, pleasing, supportive, useful, all of these types of things feed into the cognitive load. If a person has to think too hard, if a person is trying to remember what they did last time they used this, if a person is confused, if a person finds themselves engaging in what Steve Krug would call mental chatter, where they start talking to themselves, you ever seen anybody use a design and then they ask themselves, what in the world is this? When a person starts to ask themselves questions, you know there's a problem because they do not have the answer. That's actually why that question came out because they don't have the answer. So when people engage in mental chatter, they start talking to themselves, you have a cognitive load issue. The cognitive load keeps going up and up and up because people can't see because the contrast is bad. People can't make a connection between the call to action and the, the, you know, is this a primary action? Is this a secondary action? And the users aren't thinking about primary or secondary, but they're looking at these and they don't know which one is more important. Are there too many competing elements on a page? 
it is the 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 language being used improperly on the page have you established proper information architecture so that the as we talked about last week the nomenclature the labeling is 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 very easy to understand it's readable it makes sense the taxonomies things are grouped appropriately so people are finding things in the areas where they expect to find them when our designs match mental models when our designs are are going to reflect what people are expecting in the experience that's when our user experience design is optimized but if we're making them think too hard if we're we're causing them to reach their annoyance threshold if we are putting people in a position where they are very frustrated and they're looking to 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 abandon it's a matter of time before they look for an alternative means to 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 help fulfill the what it is they're trying to do when they're at your site or in your mobile app issues we want to make sure that we're always evaluating cognitive load that we realize that we're presenting something simple and easy and that it flows seamlessly that's our goal as a ux professional so are these things that you are interested in doing? Are, are these things that you are willing to do on a daily basis and to gather requirements to help drive toward this? Then you're a little bit further along. We're out of time, though, for today. So we're going to pick up next week in the list. And so until then, this is your host, Darren Hood. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to me on today. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.